welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to the Droga Lecture for 2018. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Acting Director here at the Gallery. Absolutely thrilling to see you here, the, our kind of sister art of architecture, if you like, here in the building at the Art Gallery of South Australia. We have been hosting this event for a number of years and our city is enriched each time our architect in residence arrives. And you have the great honour and privilege of hearing from Alexis Chanal this morning. Rachel Hurst will be introducing Alexis. I'd like to kick off by acknowledging that we, of course, meet here on Ghana country this morning. And I'd like to pay my tribute and respects to elders past, present and future. The Art Gallery of South Australia, hopefully, is a place that you, most of you are familiar with. After the lecture today, you may want to do one of many things. You may wish to attend the 2018 Adelaide Biennial, which you'll find at the western end of the building, upstairs and downstairs. You may wish to wander through China and the world, which is in the downstairs Lower Melrose area, or go upstairs through the European wing. You may wish to experience our rehang of Australian art, which is upstairs in Gallery 6, or buy a ticket to see Colours of Impressionism an exhibition which is already breaking records here at the gallery in terms of visitation. Reviewed this morning very favourably by John McDonald in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Enough of a plug. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and without further ado I'm going to hand over to Dr Rachel Hurst. Thank you. Please join me in welcoming her. Welcome everybody and I have to say I'm kind of surprised to be doing this because I didn't realise I was doing an introduction but that's okay. Um, I'm going to take the kind of immediacy and vitality that markets show to extemporise, to introduce um, Alexis and Alexis will also tell you a little bit about herself in um, uh, uh, introducing her own talk. But I do know Alexis's work as a member of the Droga jury that selected and invited um, Alexis to come here. And one of the things that was most impressive about her presentation was the absolute vitality and energy about her work, which marries perfectly with the idea of markets, which are a kind of, I think, the litmus test of a good place. Um, if you don't know much about the Droga residency, a brief word about that because it is a uh, fabulous program that invites um, eminent practitioners or scholars um, to come and spend three months in Australia with a program that engages very much with the place of Australia. And um, as a jury panel, uh, member, I now understand the kind of variety of things that are possible um, and any of you who want to initiate a residency for somebody for next year, I'd really encourage you to look closely at it and to give it a go. We've had such a variety of really fascinating um, people and Alexis is continuing that tradition. Yesterday I heard Alexis speak to a workshop of um, uh, students and practitioners and, and people invested in the city and you're in for a treat. Um, her reading of markets, which are very dear to our, our hearts in Adelaide with the fabulous central market, uh, was um, uh, nuanced and um, showed all the sorts of communication skills that, of course, as an architectural educator, I'm keen to foster in my students, looking very closely at behavioural patterns as well as physical patterns. But the 
typology of a market is something that we're very familiar with. What perhaps we're not so familiar with is the challenge in Alexis's work to how cities are made and the idea of self-directed urbanism, of sharing economies and how to actively let go perhaps for architects of some of the control of that and leave it to a more organic sense. I think that's a fascinating topic and I'm looking forward to her um, expanding that for you all. So some very basic housekeeping, bathrooms through here. We will be recording Alexis's lecture and there will be an opportunity with this mic for questions at the end. Great. It's working. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay. And are you happy with that light setting? Would you like it to be darker? Uh, no, that's. I like seeing people. It's good, nice. Good. Yeah. I'm sure they like seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I um, cannot thank um, Sam and Rachel and Lisa enough for the hospitality. Um, I've only been here for, you know, 48 hours, but I was saying um, earlier that there's a really nice momentum to Adelaide that's um, hard to capture, but there's an urbanity um, and a sense of place. I'm going to start the talk with something that really hit me a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, practicing in Istanbul. And I don't know if any of you have been following um, the recent history of Turkey, but one of the things is in the last 20 years, it's gone through an incredibly rapid transformation. And one of those rapid transformations is a huge influx of foreign direct investment, but also a sense that this country needs to be rebuilt in terms of infrastructure and housing and other um, you know, built environment requirements. And I was really struck by this kind of um, strong trend of very large architecture being visualized and visioned as a replacement of the city. And it, it really frightened me. And I came across this idea um, of Wallace Stevens at the time called superfiction. Um, the imagination loses vitality as it ceases to adhere to what is real. When it adheres to the unreal and intensifies what is unreal, while its first effect may be extraordinary, that effect is the maximum effect that it will ever have. And I think this is really an interesting idea because as we build cities, this is something that takes an incredible amount of time. It has a plasticity and it's a dialogue with what is part of our past and how that is going to shape our shared future. And yet a lot of the decisions that we're making are on these kind of hyper visualizations of, you know, these, uh, unrealistic expectations, these fantasies about what our cities can do to support us. When I moved to Istanbul 20 years ago, or almost 20 years ago, um, I was really struck by this phenomena of one-day markets. Um, they are ubiquitous throughout the city, um, but most interesting to me is that they would be built on any terrain in the city that they were by most, it's a very large city. It's a city of about 12 million uh, residents, of which there's an additional 3 million that come in and out for the kind of university or trading or finance economy. So that's 15 million people. This is um, just a perspective on its size. Um, and yet everybody, every neighborhood seemed to have a market. Um, and one of the things that really struck me as well is how everybody had this kind of routine and rhythm of going to the market. Um, and in my neighborhood, I, you know, I was uh, 
indoctrined into this pattern. But then when I was thinking from the real estate point of view, as all these kind of meta projects were coming online um, in shopping centers, I was really struck with this idea that if I told you I could build you a 40,000 square meter marketplace, do my guess is, you know, at least over a million, if not a few million dollars in trade in one afternoon, and it would be completely gone by the end of the day. You would say I was crazy, right? Um, and so I started looking at them a bit closer, but I started looking at them closer, not from the point of view of the social structure, but the actual tectonic structure. How could they build these incredibly complex and very overarching canopies? And it, by this time, I'd lived in the city for about two or three years, and they're open rain, sleet, snow, sun, you name it. And they would actually be subtly expand and contract to protect the different seasons and different climates. And so I started working with the, the market makers, which are called the Pizar Jalar, and documenting their notes. They'd make me all their knots and, and how they were using all of the ropes with the tarps and the poles, and found out that this is a kind of an extraordinary system of parts and components that is based on a system of structural redundancy. And that because of its kind of system of redundancy and their collection of knots, they could easily calibrate it collectively and as they put it up as one kind of um, system, they could also take parts of it down independently by recalibrating each one of these parts. So, you know, I would document them in terms of their connections, in terms of their storage, in terms of their ability to kind of have components that it could expand and contract, and then had fun looking at how they actually were anchoring them into the city um, in different ways. And parallel, a group of uh, close colleagues of ours, Superpool, was doing a mapping of Istanbul, looking at many, many different factors, but worked together to look at how the, the markets were actually being mapped in the city. And what really also came apparent is these markets, there's, um, as you can see here, they're just under 450. Um, we did this last year, maybe a year before, and then um, I think in 2010, I want to say 2009, and despite a very strong policy kind of against this idea of kind of mixophobia um, or this idea of modernization to remove these from the city, we actually saw an increase from about 380 to 450 um, two years ago. And consistently, this very even spread of the markets through the days of the week. Um, and you can kind of see here how they work within the residential neighborhoods. The other thing that I started to kind of understand by looking at, you know, going around and starting to look at different ones is that they never use public space. This was really compelling to me as well because unlike the European markets or the markets that um, we have in the U.S., they would never use the park or the public square or the main street. They would always use secondary open space and create a synergy of public life with those public spaces. So they would use the watershed they would use the side streets. They would use, um, again, parking structures that were being underutilized. And, and yet these would actually make these really nice connections into the social fabric and creating this kind of theatrical public life one day a week. Um, and I'm just going to play a little video here of them making them. Oops. So we, uh, this is an older document um, of them putting them up and taking them down. 
And we documented two different sites so that you could see this uh, phenomenon. So this is a watershed, which has a parking lot in it. Um, and I came to understand that this is actually one of the only acts that I know of a man-made generative system, that all of these people work together with a minimum amount of parts and co-create this marketplace. And they co-create its kind of exchanges. Um, and like your markets, these are hypothetically competitors in the sense that they're not selling, you know, they're selling fresh food and household goods. Um, but each group in smaller components works together to create the whole. Um, and then this is on a street. Um, I have some other videos that I can um, share at the very end. When we started actually filming these, we actually came to understand that there's nothing chaotic about this, that they actually use the same anchors and the same locations and the same polling systems every single week. So this is an actual performance. It's completely choreographed. Um, and, and when somebody new comes in, they recalibrate those locations. Um, and, and so this is the takedown. The other thing we came to understand is people see this as being part of the informal economy. Um, it is not. Each one of these people have a chamber. There's a chamber that they're all registered to. Um, you know, the, according to the chamber, they have a 70% you know, inclusion in the taxed economy. I think that's pretty consistent with most businesses in Turkey. Um, and as you'll see now, the city comes in and helps actually clean up the marketplace after they're gone. So there is actually nothing informal by any standard about how they work. Um, and when the cities have tried to clear them, coming back to the kind of social formality of them, there's a really strong backlash. Everybody in the community approaches the local mayors and says, you know, you can't, you know, you've taken my market away. Then the mayors come in, they try to provide bus services for all the people to go to the new location of the market. And, you know, mayors in Anatolia have very kindly approached us and said, you know, please help me. The, you know, these women are going to kill me. You have to find a place to put this market back. Um, so they're very, very um, uh, important parts of the pattern of the city. And from everything that I can gather, it's a practice that's gone on over, you know, well over a thousand years. And despite the fact that, you know, there is other alternatives for systems, including things like, you know, the Oz tent and everything else, these gentlemen actually prefer these systems because this is a system that can take care of their, um, sorry, let me just pause that. Um, Clients. So let's say unlike um, the markets of Paris or the markets of Australia, these actually protect their, their audiences um, from the rain and the sun and provide a shelter for the entire market where those ones don't. So these, these systems are actually not inexpensive. They invest a lot in these rope systems. They're all natural fibers. So anybody who does sailing knows these are actually significantly more expensive than the ready-made options available. Now, how did I get to actually taking this one step further to the point that I would kind of look at one-day markets as an urban form? It's, this came in 2009, 2010. We were commissioned to do this um, public parking. 
It's a, a parking garage of six stories underground for a thousand cars with a multi-nodal transportation hub. Um, so under here is the metro station, over here is the kind of dome motion bus stations, um, and this connects out to the kind of airport. It connects to this, actually, railway here. Um, and what we found was really interesting was this idea that the markets were using of residual land. So in the 1970s, there was this road built through the center, it goes actually straight here, through the center of the city, and the 20th, like the turn of the century, like the 1910s, the vision of this area was to have a big, big public park that connected to the water down here. And then this was the edge of the Genoese city with this kind of very large, you know, green space. And when the road was built, it just butchered this green space uh, in two and fragmented it and, and, and kept these islands of land. Um, but these islands of land perceptually collapsed. So nobody even knew this large piece of land was even here anymore. And when we open the park, we get significantly um, interesting comments that were like, thank you for giving us back a piece of our city that we didn't even know was there. And this really struck us that, that actually um, this desire to have connectivity in public life um, is really valued by the everyday citizens of the place. Um, and, and we think that, as I mean, in the public sector in Istanbul, we think that people want these kind of big, grand forest-type parks. But in fact, you know, these small gestures of actually taking a lot of the residual fragmented land and re reconstructing them as kind of spacious, uh, comfortable places to be that, you know, we spent a lot of time also creating, through many discussions with the Landmark Commission, to actually create a three-meter buffer here because of the noise pollution. But actually, if we didn't create this buffer of noise pollution with the plants and everything else, this would be so loud and offensive to sit in that it would be uncomfortable. Or that actually by creating no dead ends so that you could walk around, you could see a 360 view and reconnect to the ecology and the kind of narrative of your city. And each one of these as well was also another idea, which is all of them connect to, all three of them connect to the sun movement of the city actually. So this is actually where the sun sets at, um, in summertime, this is where it sets at wintertime, and this is kind of spring and fall. And so with this sudden, you know, ability to see the sky and the, the golden horn again, you could follow the movement of the ge geography much closer and then, you know, use the, that consciousness back into caring for nature. Um, some years later, we also got commissioned to do the public realm of this adapted uh, beer factory. And there was a lot of debates back and forth about how we should use this space, whether it should be you know, um, just left open. Um, and what we try to uh, encourage, this is a private development, but the, and the city was very, very aggressive to not want any type of um, high-density public activities here. We said, okay, let's just rehearse this idea together. So rather than building a big kind of um, public stage and make everybody anxious in terms of the costume investment, we said, let's just put 10% of the budget that we had imagined doing for a big park and public space into a rehearsal of it. And let's just see if we can create a pattern of people coming here. This was after, I don't know if you guys are aware of the politics of Turkey, but this was after Gezi Park. So people were really anxious about large public gatherings. 
Um, and, and so there's a lot of kind of anxieties from different points of view. And what we found is that, in fact, this became this incredibly beloved piece of the city because all of those spaces had slowly been taken away. And people just enjoyed to watch movies together again. They enjoyed listening to music together again. And it actually um, created the sense of camaraderie to a piece of the city that was not being visited. Um, and slowly, the city became much more comfortable with the idea that we could actually um, transform this into a public space. The investor came much more comfortable with the idea that they could kind of accommodate large crowds. And the operators of the place became much more comfortable that they could actually run the restaurants to, and have big events, and they would not be competing. So we learned this idea of rehearsal was really an important piece of getting consensus making and using budgets in a different way. Um, the other thing we did here, which I think is important with markets, is create a gateway using all of the local species that used to be part of this landscape um, of 100 years ago. And again, just creating a pause from the kind of density, you can see all the decay around the site, um, to have just, again, another consciousness of movement into the public space. At the same time, we were doing this public park, this group moving museum approached us and asked us if they could use the bottom two floors of this parking garage for their Biennale uh, program, which is, we were kind of struck by. And what we understood is that all of the venues to do large programs in the city are so expensive, actually, that they either inhibit them from doing them or they make them so costly that the audience is only a very kind of um, educated audience. And this group was really interested in not using their budgets or half their budget to rent a venue space, but using that to invest in commissioned art. And so we talked to uh, this particular client is both the city and the operator of the parking lot and said, Would, you know, could we, we do this? And you know, the, we all thought, why not? It could also bring another idea of how to use the space and the time-based uses of the space. And what we saw as people moved through there is this really strong sense of public play, that people actually now were going into the bottom of a parking structure, which in this part of the city was really seen as a very negative and unsafe space. Um, which I think this parking lot broke with the color and the light, but that was the perception of what parking lots were in Galata. And now they're coming there and they're coming to see a, quite an amazing art exhibition and people start bringing their families and they start actually reinventing and reimagining how they could use their city. We also were doing a public library, it's not an institutional library for a cultural center and um, you can see a little bit of the decay of the city around. We, and nobody lives in this area. So when we did the 90 seats for it, we kind of said, yeah, good luck getting people there. And after a year and a half, we got lines on a Sunday morning out because the city actually began to own this space as their own. So these are all the kids trying to apply for high schools and universities, and they are traveling about an hour on a bus to come down here to have this sense of aspiration and using the seats. And what came from this, which I found really interesting, is then the, the people that were there to actually use the collection that was part of this library, which was art and economics um, and design, felt really marginalized. They couldn't actually use this collection, so they had to build a second space for it, which we did, and we kind of repurposed the vault space of the old bank building. Um, but more interestingly, 
we realized that this, the program of this cultural center was something new. And therefore, we, with all the kind of leftover scraps from the, the reading room that we were creating, we actually created a space dedicated for this audience to come and just study and feel comfortable just throwing their stuff out and getting out of the kind of riffraff of the whole cultural center, but it belonged to them. So that's when I started realizing there's something there there. You know, how do we start articulating these phenomena that we are participating in and we're seeing? And as an urban designer, I was very interested, of course, in most of you know, the turn of the, the mid-century theory, um, like Jane Jacobs and, um, you know, Kevin Lynch and Gell. And I started also seeing that, you know, there was this other thing going on in mathematics that was equally as interesting, that mathematics was also going through this kind of renaissance through parametric design and looking at nature as a, um, you know, a non-Euclidean and non-Newtonian system. And this was really, I kind of started seeing these things because, of, of course, as a practice of architecture, you're starting to use all these kind of mathematics to drive design and come up with kind of visualizations and, and how to make sense of um, complex systems. And what really struck me is what Mandelbrot set brought out, which is that this kind of idea of self-similarity and what his mathematics introduced, which is the, this idea of feedback, that you could actually create complexity through feedback. And it was actually by creating these feedback loops that things were constantly recalibrated. And I thought, oh, well, this sounds a lot like what we're doing and observing and how they're making these you know, marketplaces. I parallel coming kind of was starting to think, what are these enduring civic forms? Like these markets, they've been going on for you know, clearly a few hundred years, and some of them have been in the same place for those times. And now that, to me, really became clear that those were enduring civic forms. And, and if we're starting to say that you know, everybody's you know, dying to build libraries and museums and theaters and parks and schools, well, these, these time-based things are also as enduring and as important to our civic life. And this idea of play, and places for occasion, and places to perch and watch the theater of the city, um, st really started to resonate um, in kind of putting things together, as well as this, how do we create a collective imagination for a shared future? So, of course, where we've been defines a significant amount of where we're going. But then, how do we actually create an interesting collective imagination that isn't, you know, ginormous, you know, heroic, bizarre, architectural shapes, but is actually about, as a society and a community and, um, you know, uh, and move, I think the other thing that, uh, sorry to take a step back, but through this period of 20 years, I, of course, went from being a young adult to a young practitioner to having a family to looking after my parents and, and my husband's parents. And, and I think we, we also forgot to design cities that we have many, many different generations and we change through those generations. And this also is kind of part of that. How do we create this inclusivity so that we kind of are, are, are thinking about that? So last year I um, had the opportunity to apply for the Droga residency and I thought this would be a really good opportunity to spend these, you know, three months to actually say, is there there there? Is there something going on? And I think what also struck me 
from actually living in Istanbul for 20 years, I started realizing all the discourse that was going on in contemporary cities and kind of advanced industrialized economies or post-industrial economies was really relevant to how the plasticity of Istanbul and some of the things that we were thinking and how that we could contribute to that discussion after this experience in um, a kind of developing economy and a developing structure. So I, um, last year I was here as part of the Landscape Architecture Conference and everybody you know, um, was really excited about this Black Immo book and this role of the aboriginals um, taking the, the, this kind of um, managed landscape. And so I, of course, um, read the book and came across this that really set the tone for me, which is Australia's native landscape is filled with grains and oats and millets and rice. And his comment that there is no contemporary market for these grains. But I bet a stall in any city market could sell flowers from these grains at a premium price to Whole Foods enthusiasts. Markets are created by entrepreneurs. Set aside a few paddocks and have some fun and I'll eat my boots if it doesn't yield a profit. So this was really struck to me that yes, these are really the kind of business incubators of our time. And, and I'm sure many of you are also involved in these kind of really abstract conversations about what the creative city is and what the creative economy is and what the shared economy is. And you know what, this, this is it. You know? And these markets are actually not a new form. This has been going on, this kind of entrepreneurship and business incubators and testing things in laboratories for this is in our marketplaces. So in a simple sense, I, um, I'm based in Sydney, so most of the actually documenting the one-day markets is happening, of course, in Sydney. Um, and what I did is I took the map of the city and figured out every market that was in a 30-minute train public transportation ride from where I'm staying, which is somewhere in here. Um, and I haven't yet mapped the suburban markets, but you can see this, that actually the suburban markets do make pretty much a ring like this around the city, which, and these are all the markets within a 30 minute drive. And you also see these kind of interesting patterns that happen about how the communities are kind of organized. Um, to make sure that this was part of an understanding of you know, the, the urban economics and of land and, and how we, we think of, um, market economies, I, I made this kind of um, infographic, which is a matrix that look at the types of lands that they're built on. So church, public schools, public streets, neighborhoods, um, the, what they sold. So the blue is general markets, the green are food uh, markets, and the purple is event markets. And then on the left side, I looked at what was the purpose of the business? Was it to kind of, um, enable community interest, was it enable institutional interest, or was it just a pure commercial venture? And then also looked from the other side of it, you know, is this about the sharing economy, is it about creating a kind of local made economy, or is it just business to business? And I think what you found, which is, and, and I then organized them a bit, that these are actually the earlier markets that were established, and these are the newer markets kind of within the last 20 years. And you see that the markets went from 40 years ago being kind of community-driven markets to actually being quite you know, commercial entrepreneurial markets. And I aggregated it so you have the market type. So you know, the general markets and farmers markets are pretty even. 
you see this big jump 20 years ago, which is probably that um, consciousness of food security and having access to fresh organic food. Um, land participation, I thought it was really interesting that very little private land is participating in it, that it's mostly public and institutional land. And, and institutional land, that's also mostly public land. That's, um, those are like public schools, um, uh, organizations like this that are government, but I call them institutional. So um, business types, so you see you know, most of it is like commercial community, 50-50, the different trades and their sizes. So, there's not a lot of large markets. Um, the, the majority are these kind of 70-stall markets. Um, I went and visited these 24 markets and tried to document them in terms of how they were creating a new rhythm on that day for the urban form and the city. And so we have the public schools, the churches, the community grounds, the streets, which I have two more of. I, I just haven't scanned them in yet. Um, the residual lands, parks, town squares, institutional lands, and private lands. Um, I'll just take a step back here, because what I found quite interesting is this other idea of the public room and, and the idea of kind of critical mass. So for example, King's Cross, which is here, which I imagine is a very, very large market, is actually, you know, the Surrey Hills market, which I saw really small, they're actually about the same size. Um, and, you know, this market, the, the new town, neighborhood market I thought was a tiny little speck, but it's not so you know, much different than the, the Chinatown night market. So I actually saw this really interesting, um, my own perception even, even being an educated um, you know, uh, I, uh, found that in fact that, that their situations and how they actually create that sense of community and density and you know, importance through their size um, really mattered. Um, and just kind of a zoom in of what that was doing. Um, the other thing I came to kind of understand is the role of the public theater. So this is carriage works. Um, you have this kind of perch that you come into, everybody watches each other. But then after everybody does their shopping, they sit along this edge and watch each other parade with their kind of fancy dogs or their kids running the bikes and everything else. So this was really interesting. It became Part of it was just sitting there and enjoying each other and watching each other and this clear, you know, runway. I mean, people, you know, shamelessly parading or back and forth. It was quite fun. Um, King's Cross. And what I found in King's Cross that was really interesting, which was similar, is these micro little pockets, these kind of little spill outs where people would use to kind of socialize, these little social rooms that were supporting the life of the market. Um, like all good urban forms, though, I wanted to see if this particular civic form of the market, the one-day market, had the same presence of something like a public library or a town hall. So I tried to think in those sites, is there a landmark that belongs to the market that transcends the place? So for example, here you have the Victoria Square. Does the you know town hall, I don't know if there's a town hall on there, but does it transcend its own identity? Does it have its own landmark? So, and then had fun looking at you know, the patterns of those. So this is um, Carriage Works, Paddington Market, uh, King's Cross, Kirribilli, Glebe Market, Chinatown with the people sitting under the trees, 
I did the same thing and this idea of what I'm very interested in, which is touch culture or the haptic relationship we have with the city. So at all points when you know, we think of design of the city, we are actually touching the ground. And we have this very strong haptic relationship to the ground. But everybody talks about these markets in another sensory experience, which is their smell and their textures and their colors and, and how this rich kind of um, experience is part of the, the emotional connection. So I looked at each market in terms of that as well. So the squash of carriage works, very neatly placed, the kind of you know, in labyrinth of market stalls at Glebe, um, Tirabilly, Paddington Market, uh, Entertainment Quarter, this actually applies to all markets, the ham and eggs, sandwiches, um, bacon and egg sandwiches, but I did it for Merrickville. Um, and through that, can we actually start talking about these as a type of, like a taste culture? So each city in themselves, through the market subcultures and supporting even those subcultures of subcultures, start having their own particular identity, their own urban culture that, that is very unique to this process of iteration and participation. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's really interesting themes of uh, textures and tones and colors. Um, but as I am here to understand, you know, the knowledge possibilities of what I was kind of feeling from practice was that I did kind of, there was about these nine principles that really started to resonate with me, which is that time-based architecture can be an ur enduring urban form. And if we think of land scarcity, this becomes a really powerful idea because if we can actually put multiple programs in the same site, then we don't have to duplicate those as built resources. Um, that civic landmarks do create an important sense of identity and these time-based practice, these uh, time-based architecture can create its own civic landmark. Um, what we talked about before a little bit, that urban play and, and playful public space is a really important kind of emotional um, part of people loving their city, people feeling a part of their city, people feeling that they're empowered to reimagine and reinvent their city. That you do need a lot more participatory regulations and economy or agile regulations. I don't know how to describe this, but of course the shared economy gets this fully. And, and I feel that there's this schism right now in a lot of discourse because, for example, the Ubers and the Googles, they just kind of come in and make their own regulations on a city. And then you have kind of the art practices and the street artists, and they do the same. But there's this ginormous gap in between these two extremes that are so over-regulated and over-controlled that, that, that we're actually um, losing an entire momentum of possibility to actually make our cities meaningful, but also create very vibrant, successful economies. Um, people are really good at situational placemaking. People know how, if you hand a place over and say, reinvent it for what you need, they're pretty good at it. But what we, I am learning from talking to people, um, including um, people like Tim Greer and Peter Tonkin and, and talking with Kirsten Steele, you do need to provide provisions. So you can't, it just can't be anything and everything that you do need to provide an appropriate um, set of parameters in case of markets. Some of it is very basic like storage and electricity. For events and festivals, it's probably a bit more complex. That the self-organized urbanism does seem to be kind of a possibility. It's, you know, we certainly with the 24 markets that I found in um, Sydney, 
you can clearly see this pattern of a community saying, we need fresh food, them approaching the public school, the public school saying, okay, well, let's see if we can make this work, and then the marketeers coming in, the people producing the market to actually curate the system. So these are very heavily organized um, people, but they are, they're not going under the radar, they're not being subversive, they're just trying to make things work within the kind of parameters that are available. Um, this idea that we were talking a lot about yesterday, this kind of being there, living there, scaling there, that, that actually this idea of living culture is um, a really important part to the vitality of a city and also the kind of um, shaping its meaning for the citizens that suggesting as an act of formalism is a possibility. Now, this is something a little bit different, which I, I um, think Britt Anderson talks beautifully about, which is that you don't actually have to tell people how to use the program, that you can just suggest its possibilities, and therefore people will use it as a, to their own ends, but it just needs very subtle things, and I'll talk about this in a minute in um, some of the European markets I looked at. And this idea of rehearsals um, seems to really resonate with people as a way to kind of create stepping stones and as a counter to pop-up culture. So pop-up culture, I find a little bit both very exciting but also very dangerous because pop-up culture serves a very narrow audience for a very specific time. But in some ways, we actually want these things to endure and be passed on from kind of year to year and generation to generation. And rehearsals is a much, is an alternative way to go from kind of, um, uncertainty to uh, a clear understanding of what it could be to a sense of permanence. Um, in the context of trying to understand the, the kind of um, Australian one-day markets and the Istanbul markets, I thought, well, let me look at kind of contemporary European, not contemporary, but in the sense that markets that are alive and well today, um, and see where they kind of lie within the spectrum of thinking. So I, I kind of organized them in two ways, one which were the purpose-built markets and one which were the social-built markets. Um, and again, I drew them the same way um, to see if I could see what type of patterns they created. And one of the things that I found by drawing them is that you see this really interesting, and I'm sure it's the same in the Adelaide market, this really beautiful, fine-grained patterns of how these connect to the kind of streets and social circulation of the city. And yesterday, we actually asked the students in the workshop to draw similar mappings of um, the market. And they were, you know, I think Sam could speak more of this, but they were really surprised with how much they could see the connectivity or the fracturing is happening when you actually just document those movements. Um, in the, the purpose-built market, one of the things I find very interesting, it's Plechnitz market, because instead of actually building a marketplace, what he did, his response, was to actually build the civic identity by just building a very suggestive urban form at the edge of the marketplace, which is here. He actually gave the market a landmark and kind of its role in civic circulation. Um, and this was kind of a very powerful idea, back to this idea of suggesting occasion um, and providing provisions. So this acts to kind of have the storage and the electricity, as well as just have some very stable things like coffee and, and food and beverage that are going on all week. But then when the market comes to life, as you can see, you know, the whole place animates in an entirely different way. Um, the second one, 
which is the Volgan Park. I, I'm not very good at pronouncing these names. I also found an interesting narrative because Sechi and Vigano, who were commissioned to actually rethink the livability of Antwerp as a master plan, their first act of architecture was to build this market canopy. Um, and this is where this market has been, from my understanding, since the Napoleon period. Um, and of course, you can imagine the resistance of building a modern structure. And their response was to actually just build this very kind of um, discreet canopy to just suggest the place um, of occasion and not to interrupt any of the flows that existed through the other days of the week. Um, and, and quite successfully, consolidated the kind of uh, market to a very clear location in place, and yet at the daytime when nobody is there, you know, it acts as a very large public room in plaza. Um, the next one I looked at was uh, the Mercat Encantes. This one's also very interesting because like your market here, it is a purpose-built market in the sense of having permanent stall holders, but their response was to leave this kind of room in the middle as a kind of carpet of asphalt that every day had a different marketplace coming in. So sometimes you have an antique market, sometimes you have a flea market, sometimes you have all the, the hawkers coming in, sometimes you have the book fair, sometimes it's just open. And so this became this kind of um, shared room of marketplace. And you can see its kind of connection to the city. The Paris markets, which are very well known for their street markets, and they, they've created this very subtle structure with the city cooperates with these marketeers to put up every morning um, in this linear form. And then this market that is located in Venice, uh, which I also found to show that even in places the entire economy is based on tourism, the local community organizes itself to have a market, a trade market that offers kind of um, affordable goods, things that are relevant to themselves, things for their daily lives. Um, and, but I did find it interesting that given how long the tradition of market making in um, that part of Europe is that they did prefer the ready-made tent. Um, but as you notice, all of these go into public space unlike the Turkish markets, which I, I, again, I found is a kind of interesting contribution of the Anatolian culture. So how does this relate to architecture? Because at the end of the day, um, I practice architecture as a kind of form of slow urbanism. And what, could, what, are, what are these acts of market making that are actually architectural acts? And so I came to kind of understand these few qualities, um, and I'm still working on this, so Please forgive my um, state of thinking. One, which is this idea of civic presence. So either the associated landmark or using kind of grand species or monuments and or like what we were seeing, these kind of gesturing canopies to give this kind of new place into um, its, its platform, but not in the sense of creating a building, but in the sense of creating a volume and a kind of demarcation of um, suggestion. This idea of public play, that having spaces designed for play, whether they're adjacent to the market or kind of bigger rooms inside the market or kind of proper um, promenades. The critical mass really matters, that you need both the kind of relief and looking in, but people really like this kind of moving in and out and these different densities. Um, Planning for social settings, 
And I have not been to a single market in all of Australia that does not have live music. So this was a really important part of this routine and rhythm and phenomena. So that can be, you know, a very clearly set up. It could be kind of a few little pockets on the side and then a stage set up, the more part of the play. Or you would have it in the middle of the kind of bustle of it, but then have these kind of little niches that are a little bit more quiet. One of the things that really struck me that people would talk about a lot, which um, is this idea of closure. Um, people really feel comfortable in these one-day markets when they have a sense of closure. And, and so defining forms could be like trees or um, other types of you know, urban objects. The other one is, of course, you know, the actual room, so you're in a, mar a square, or even the form of being between two places like in carriage works with the shed and the building, so, or in a street. Um, provisions were really important, so people cared a lot if they could find electricity. Um, of course, the people producing it um, were always very disappointed if they had to spend significant resources on bathrooms for rental. Um, having storage facilities, not for all the market people, but for all the social furniture that they used to set up the kind of suggestion of life. Um, and that the ground surfaces really mattered. So um, hardscape, but you could have other things that were softer scape, um, different textures on the ground. But the, a careful understanding of curbs that there's this real trip problem in the market because people are looking ahead of themselves. Um, so this has also been a really interesting thing of how to deal with these sight lines and um, creating surfaces that when the market is not used are very clear where the car goes and doesn't go or where the you know, different functions go, but um, yet is very empathetic to the, the pedestrian life of the market. And the last one I found actually most interesting architecturally because it does really imply a um, three-dimensional quality is this idea of perches and sight lines. And both the marketeers talked about it and the visitors talked about it, that being able to come in and see the hole and kind of dive into it, or being able to kind of step aside and just watch everybody. Um, and you know that kind of comes back to, as a designers, if we know that public schools could be great places for one-day markets, then how we design kind of amphi uh, settings or a little bit of terrain or enclosure to support the school life but also then support the market life seems a really obvious uh, step forward. Um, the last part of the residency was actually visiting all these different cities which is um, so Cam Canberra, um, Tasmania, I visited Hobart and um, and Adelaide and um, Melbourne and what I tried to do in this idea is not to look at more markets because I think that uh, they're not so different, um, but actually look at what we could learn in terms of city making practice from this. So I came up with these four standards by which I could look at projects as I come to these other cities. And one of that is if they engage agile regulations and enable subcultures, that they have some type of innovative finance model so that they are activating underutilized resources, that includes land, that includes people, that includes um, grants, um, or even private funding. That it does have cross-use programs, so it's used at one time a day for this and another time a day for that, and it has this kind of nuisance playfulness of possibilities. And 
this one a little bit so do these things start to create what the market does which is this shared narrative the sense of a kind of participation of the community and owning it as part of their civic identity um, what I didn't look at and is these kind of other really powerful modes of operation in our cities right now like pop-up uh, events festivals and permanent markets and Adelaide being the exception to this um, because you are the most beloved permanent market, um, do these markets create a sense of identity? Like, can we say that this is actually part of the identity of those cities? Well, in the case of Hobart and Canberra and Adelaide, these are the top three visited destinations in their cities. Um, Hobart gets 40,000 people on a weekend in the summertime. I mean, that's a pretty phenomenal number. Um, in Canberra, they actually really associate this public identity with this strong sense of their university crafts, their investment in these kind of uh, glasswork studios and pottery studios, and then this kind of crafting of public performance that they have. Um, and in Adelaide's case, which I find very interesting, it has a lot to do with this kind of performance of multiculturalism and different um, not just food culture, but the kind of um, the, the, the theater of the different food cultures. So all of the different cakes, all the different pastas, all the different kind of fresh foods that are coming in from the farmlands. There's this great theater to this multiculturalism that you don't see in a lot of the other markets. The other two things that I came to really understand is that there are markets, coming back to this earlier conversation about business incubators of kind of where I started into this um, of creative industries, that there are some markets that are real game changers, that you know the markets of carriage works, the market of harvest market, and um, Canberra's market, these have actually measurably shifted an economy, whether that's the, you know, um, and interestingly enough, that part of their, anybody who's into kind of cultural programs, they actually also, in addition to running these markets, they do like dating programs, like business to business development to help these people move from being a small business to meeting other things to coming up with new industries. And quite successful, all of them have great stories coming out of it. But what I came most interested in is what other emergent civic practices are utilizing the same framework that 20 years ago the kind of um, organic food market did to reinvent these underutilized spaces. So I came to understand, I went up to Brisbane to see this place, Flow State. Um, I came across by accident this picture house, which is a great story, and this play on music in Melbourne. And what I came to understand is that through um, this movement of performance art and this idea of um, you know, innovative business in the sense of um, small collectives coming together to find new expressions of their contemporary life were being extraordinarily inventive of working with um, different actors, meaning like the markets did with the schools and the audience, these guys were doing with kind of um, the public sector or private spaces. Um, and really, I do think groups like Fringe that is in all the cities was a huge activator to make this economic shift. Um, so flow state was really interesting to me because even though at the first guess this would seem like a very formal system, 
what they did was was quite powerful as the South Bank Corporation, which is you know a government development agency who operates a space, had a food and beverage uh, venue that seemed to be kind of oversaturated in food and beverage. So they reached out to the performance community and said, what can we do for you? And they said, we would like to have an open performance space, completely open to the weather, open to the public, where it's just raw, where everybody sees what's going on. And this is actually a rehearsal. This is not a performance. So everybody can walk up to it and see the performance being realized. So you're not necessarily maybe you're, you're actually, it's no longer behind closed doors. Everything is accessible. People can walk through here for the most part while these people are performing um, and rehearsing. And they're all free events. And the only thing the architecture does is actually suggest where you should enter and suggest where you should sit. Um, and it's open 24 hours to the public. Um, this one was really interesting to me because this talks about something that is happening more and more in contemporary society, which is there is this group, uh, La Soirée. They are a circus cabaret traveling the world. Um, but they were finding their overhead in Melbourne was just far too um, taxing. And they came across this building in Brunswick Heads, which was abandoned for 30 years as a picture house. And they bought it, thinking it was a perfect place for them to do all their rehearsals and set up and have all their storage. What ended up happening is because they used it so kind of limited is they turned it over to the community in some ways and said, hey, you know, what do you guys want to see happen here? What would you imagine is possible here? And people have a lot of families. There's a lot of people that are empty nesters. There's a lot of people that are retired. And what they found is all these communities started coming out and say, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? And they would say, yeah, you know, why not? Like, um, and so they this platform that has now kind of been totally owned by the community and they do fantastic things like um, singing to the sound of music, they do the, all of the, like there's quite a few choir groups in this area so they do these choir performances, but they also curate a very nice scent of cinema from another group that comes in. So all of these other groups have kind of adopted it as their platform for programs. And when they had some difficulties with the council all of these communities actually wrote incredibly aggressively to the council saying, how could you, this is our new community center. So they have actually turned their facility over to uh, community programs and public programs in a very interesting way and a sense of community belonging and civic ownership. Um, the last one is one I'm just totally fascinated by because it's similar to our experience with our parking garage design, but a very different in many ways is this group Play On Music, and their venue fell through at the last minute um, two years ago. Uh, they had a huge range of um, really accomplished opera singers and classical music people, and their mandate was to use underutilized places. And because regulations, um, all of the places that they had set up are one of the most important places for the larger assembly, was just too anxious to have um, you know, a whole series of different things like, you know, public assembly and alcohol and, um, and so because Fringe had been using a lot of the city, they went to Fringe and said, you know, is there any place that you can think of? And this parking garage was used a little bit before by them and it's an underground parking lot on a government housing estate that had been closed down because they felt it was a kind of unsafe place for, you know, drugs and other thing else. 
And because the housing estate had all the permits already in place, because it's, you know, it has all those licenses, they could actually open within two weeks and still run their programs. So that worked out really well, but what was most interesting is that um, in addition to this having a really good acoustic, um, this woman who runs it, Lydia, was committed to having her generation of people love opera and classical music the way she does. And she was very clear to these um, performers that you're going to come into this rather crude space, that we will be serving alcohol, that you'll hear noise, and this audience has never seen a classical music or opera. So they, you know, they, they are going to behave how they behave. Um, and what has happened is that all of the opera singers and classical music people have kind of stuck around and spent time after this saying that this is the best place they have performed ever because they have the original idea of having this kind of performance with their audience. They have this very intimate relationship with their audience. The audience is wowed because they're not comparing. It's the first time they're experiencing this, so it's very raw, it's very emotional, it's very performative, and it creates this other kind of opportunity of um, public life that is no longer a part of our kind of theatrical institutions, which is so much of these arts in terms of music and theater were born out of this intimate relationship with the audience. And somehow through years and years and years, we've just cleaned that up. So this is really an exciting idea for me um, because it shows that you can actually reinvent a new culture through these new experiences. Canberra, you know, everybody um, gives it a hard time because it's pretty void of vitality. Um, so they're the most inventive in creating it. You get a lot of these kind of, you know, um, food sellers in this kind of oasis parking garage. But you also get stuff that happens in Istanbul, which I haven't seen happen anywhere in Australia or even thought about, which is, you know, somebody just coming up with a runway and a pizza oven and, you know, using the salon over there as the bar to create a fashion show for a small shop inside. Um, the laneways are well known of this idea of kind of um, regulations and, and handing spaces over to subcultures to reinvent them and creating a kind of vibrant economy from. I do feel that a lot of the conversations that are going on with the night economy, this type of thinking really can participate and help enable that further. Um, and I kind of end here, which is a conversation I had with Rob Adams, which who they're you know, currently going through a big um, process of redoing the Victoria Market in Melbourne. And we were coming this from two different points of view that comes back to this idea of time-based uses. So this is the calendar of time for the market and how often it's used. And you know, we all feel that it, you know, how can this huge investment, this huge piece of you know, space in the city be so underutilized? You know, and I, this doesn't even count, you know, the, the night hours. So this is from 6 a.m. to uh, midnight. So the question becomes, how do we start filling this? How can we come up with other time-based programs that aren't markets? Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're classrooms. Maybe they're, you know, um, business centers. Maybe they're, they can be lots of things. Maybe they're just a great recreation space for roller derby. Um, and then how can then we invite other people in the neighborhood to come in and say, how would you use it and fill up the rest of the spaces so that we can have overlapping programs? And then even, you know, like the laneways, why don't we just look the other way sometimes when people reinvent it? You know, we don't have to actually have permission for everything. We can just say, look, you know, don't kill anybody, don't burn anybody, don't poison anybody, you know, and, and be subtle. So 
To conclude, I, this is kind of where I'm at, and hence why I've slowly changed the name of the, the topic, of this idea of exchanging grounds, that we have these grounds that are available, and we have to find new exchanging modes to use this to the, their full potential um, and invite social society to actually reinvent it with us. Um, everything that I've learned is these are incredibly formal environments, um, but they're formal by using a sense of complexity of their organizing systems, not through kind of what people think is this kind of makeshift act. They're actually quite um, organic because they allow for this feedback loop. Um, they're heavily curated environments, um, and through that curation and discourse, not discourse, but discussions amongst themselves, they do create a fine grain because things live, they die, they move on, but you have to really nurture that and steward that possibility. Um, that we need to enable possibilities, that government should be playing a much better role and, of course, negotiating externalities and competing interests, but they should not annihilate those things. Those competing interests, like the play on music, actually creates new ventures for us to explore. And that I do feel that, you know, when I talk to people in this realm, unlike maybe with the people, conversations I have in the kind of established real estate sector or construction sector or architecture sector, you know, I think self-interest is kind of retiring. That, you know, my generation and those there after me were all raised with this idea to share, 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 share. And that is coming about, and we value it. And, and it's there, and, and I think we will take those values to rebuild our city, and that we do need this trust capital, that it is there, and if we use that as a starting point, that you get a lot more kind of practical and emotional intelligences guiding good decisions. So that's where I'm at, um, yeah. And um, so this has been a really great opportunity to share this. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you so much, Alexis. That was, it's rare, isn't it, that you have someone creates a space for generative thought where you're not only engaging with international case studies, but you're thinking about your own city, which is certainly what I was doing during that lecture. That was so refreshing and seems timely, I think. But I'm very curious, very interested in the audience and some questions or perhaps some comments, responses that you may have for Alexis and her research. Sam, you're going to start. <laughs> Sam was involved yesterday in the workshop, so I am picking on you for good reason, Sam, in that you've had a kind of intensive, in a sense. But I, I can pose a question. I mean, I can't help but think about the old RA site. I can't help but think about some of the things that so-called, you know, Renew were trying to do. And I guess I'm, I, I, my question to you would be, what were you thinking about with regard to this city when you were listening and working with Alexis? Okay, so no pressure. <laughs> well, yesterday, yesterday the, the workshop was really looking at the, uh, the market arcade redevelopment, which is, which is a real live project happening in the city, which is, uh, I, mean, I mean, they're in, at the, in the final stages of actually assessing um, submissions. And the council were there, a couple of people from the council were there, and I think, I think it's fair to say that, that um, they were there for the morning. And there was some self-reflection, I have to say, I think from the councillors about, not the councillors, but the people, the people from the council, about the process they're going through after the, after the um, 
after the presentations. I mean, my interest is uh, because I run a final year um, group um, that look at that project. We've looked at it for two years and we're going to look at it again this year. And so, of course, Alexis Cumming was a fantastic opportunity to, to actually have a workshop with those students. Um, the, the interest at the moment, and it's amazing how, how often Alexis referred to the idea of the theatre of um, these spaces and the theatre of food and the, the theatre of, of food from different cultures, which is, they're all theatrical in different ways. So my interest at the moment is, is really reconnecting uh, theatre and market. So the, the theme this year will be, um, a, in, in relation to the other things I'm interested in, which is food and architecture and um, building with light and the body, the sensory body and so on. And the other thing that came through is this idea of the haptic nature of these, these spaces, which is they're very sensory um, and very haptic, the, the sense of touch and so on. So really this, I'm, I'm not asking a question, I know, but I mean, I'm talking about what happened yesterday, which was, which was fantastic. I mean, it was, it was really uh, an incredibly interesting um, workshop and it gave me a whole different way of understanding um, the market itself, particularly its interconnectedness to the city. And um, the, the uh, exercise we did in the afternoon with the students, which was, which was new to them and new to me and amazing to see uh, Alexis demonstrated actually to the students on the whiteboard and then to actually go and then start mapping, mapping out these pedestrian flows and entrances and, and dead spaces and live spaces. And it was truly, really quite uh, remarkable to see that. And then they all disappeared for 40 minutes and came back with these sketches of them and they were, they were great. So, um, so yeah, no, it was a fantastic event. And I mean, really, I think uh, helped to reconnect um, particularly the university with the city and the students with the city and um, so it was it was a kind of an interconnecting sort of event um, I'm trying to think of a question um, yeah well, that's right refreshing to see that embrace of that old technology, just that sketching that's happening of the, the pathways of action and energy. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Thank you, Alexis. That's remarkable work and really uh, relevant to this city, of course. Um, something you mentioned uh, in relation to losing momentum, almost in the bureaucracy, you didn't use the word bureaucracy, but that's what I wrote down, losing an entire momentum in the, the interaction that relates to a market and the development of a market, doesn't it? But it also relates to a city. And so here in Adelaide, which is very different to Istanbul, and um, you know we're tectonically stable and stable in many other ways, um, I'm, I'd like to know your thoughts on how we don't get lost in the bureaucracy. And on top of that, in relation to our central market specifically, I was there yesterday, um, at, not with your group, but certainly there wandering around and quite disturbed to see the balloons that the children were being given lots of balloons. They were pretty, but it got me thinking, at what point do you over-design and over-curate the performance? I think back to the utilisation, I find 
This is, I shift the conversation a little bit to housing. Um, that there's all these discussions of housing and the expansion of the city. And everywhere I go, in any Australian city, the second floor of all of these main streets is empty because there's storage and, and they're probably not being used because of fire access, I don't know, and rental agreements and everything else. And, I, um, and then you see these underutilized resources of, um, you know, just the, incredibly how wide and over-designed roads are, that, you know, that we can take back these roads as really vibrant public spaces. And if we see the car as an event, we can recognize that the parking space is, you know, an event space. And one time it can be the parking space as an event, and another time it can be something else. So I think if we just change, shift our, our framework a little bit and say, you know, some cities have done this kind of mapped, for example, lawn shifting. They've done a good job mapping all of their underutilized resources and spaces and working with private property owners to actually document them and then helping the festival events come in and use these spaces. So it has to be a synergy with public and private sector that a lot of the private spaces could, and it's stupid things like it needs a toilet and then the city can say, okay, well, we'll use this public toilet and map that into our thing. So it's looking holistically rather than isolated. And, um, you know, yes, I think that the idea of the curated environment um, is there, and I think that's part of that feedback loop. And if you let it be really, you know, healthy and, and absorb critical thinking as well as kind of, you know, emotional thinking as well as like great job thinking, you can really quickly, you know, make, when it gets oversaturated, you can say, ooh, that's too much. And when it's undersaturated, you can kind of facilitate. So I think it is that feedback loop that allows for that. And, and I find Australians very allergic to criticism. And that's not a, like. But criticism is good. Like, you know, maybe as an American, we're really into learning from all of our failures, which are really good at making monumental F-ups. But I do feel that there's something healthy by just, the people are giving negative feedback because they care, not because they want to be mean or nasty. And I think if we can see that feedback is feedback, then we can actually, um, or not we, the, you, your, your peoples can yeah. be much more constructive. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I guess my question was, I guess, about the regulation and bureaucracy and certainly building stuff that um, is very entrenched and we've seen some moves here with some liquor licensing things actually changing um, the size of uh, licensed venues and, and music and stuff made a big change. In the public space, which is slightly less regulated, it seems that with Renewal SA here and um, things like Council Splash Adelaide, they're having these rehearsals of how do we um, be more flexible in terms of... But they're kind of behind the eight ball of like, the communities kind of starting at first. But I don't see any move to that being a, the things that they've learned from those being used, I guess, as a more long-term thing, and I'm just wondering, perhaps overseas, where there have been more examples of how that works best, or whether that friction actually is good in terms of creating this kind of dialogue that people can fight against and do something because they're fighting it. Mm -hmm. And I, similarly, I couldn't help think of renewal and, and also of splash and the cautionary words of Alexis is around the pop-up. Really interesting. I would say that that's kind of what's happening. We're reinventing our cities together. We don't have a kind of understand platform. 
and actually part of this exploration in, in trying to understand self-organizing systems, and Sam and I were talking about this yesterday, is I do find an urgency to kind of have a knowledge framework to discuss this, and then once you put a knowledge framework, it just feels really contrived. But this is all new. I don't think that every city is struggling with this, and um, I think we have this, we've learned these bad habits from modernism, or we learned the bad habits from the Europeans saying the city's built, and then modernism coming in and kind of you know, rebuilding new cities around the world in a very awkward way. And then now we're in a whole new generation, um, and especially if you think of our ability to understand cities around the world and include some of those behaviors in our cultures and cities. So I do feel that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm struggling as well, and I, that's how I, the self-organizing systems, how do we make that healthy and feel comfortable with the unknown and it's, um, and talking about this, that we don't know where it's going, but that's okay, but we can't kind of tolerate madness either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was just fantastic, um, um, yeah, fantastic work and, and so rich in, in so many ways. Um, what you're effectively doing is you're doing this very kind of detailed, fine-grained, observational kind of protocol for understanding social life and uh, in the way you draw it and the way you talk about it and, and investigate it. Um, but one thing I was really curious about in your observations um, was how wh what you've been doing is during this period, you've been doing these mappings during this period of the emergence of the smartphone into our world, our social world. And um, the market seems to be possibly the, the collective or the, or the kind of um, defense or something against the, 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 the being sucked into this virtual space. But I, I'm very curious to know if during your observations and various mappings and so on, how that technology has been, what, have you seen it? how it's affected things or being brought into behaviors or, or indeed into spaces? Um, actually, that's the part, I'm, it's actually a really compelling question. It's part that I kind of missed out in this narrative of how I got here. When I went to MIT in 2000, when there were no smartphones, um, my core look was at two extremes. One was digital culture and how that was reshaping the city um, and working with cities like Seoul and even cities like Bhutan and thinking how this kind of, um, this, this new understanding of digital culture and space and place, and, and there was no mobile devices, but this kind of speculation of what it would do to the cities. Um, and in parallel to that, we were studying um, kind of economics of poverty. Um, and those two things seemed to kind of really resonate with possibilities for kind of new ideas of democracy and um, spatial mapping. Um, and, and I do think after, you know, 18 years and you know having the smartphone it was also really interesting to see because then we witnessed this rollout of the smartphone and within 10 years I mean it's an incredibly compressed gap of speculation to actually the the kind of penetration of it across the world um, but what we did find and that's maybe why I got really into this haptic culture is that we are still part of this material world and that we still 
get an incredible emotional satisfaction from touching things and playing with things and being with each other and socializing with each other. And that's kind of that being there, scaling there, that, that somehow that really resonates with people in their, their kind of um, excitement about where they live and excitement of how they feel empowered to be part of it. Having said that, um, I do feel a little bit anxious um, with, with our dependency on it and um, this kind of coming back to that super fiction, this idea of how we have these different identities now, some of which are quite synthetic. And I do feel like the market is a counter to um, this other thing. So I, sorry, long, yeah. And it comes back to the discussions we were having. I believe that modernism removed the market from civic form because it was seen as sloppy and low culture. And somehow this resurgent reinforces that it is actually one of the most essential parts of our theater. It's where we, we were talking about before. It's where we get all of our gossip. It's where we find out what's going on. We get, you know, we can feel the wind of social momentum. We feel like you know, and, and it's through this kind of, and I have, I'm not a biologist, but I have no doubt there, there's some crazy chemistry that we're all sharing in the air when we're together like that. And that's part of that collective imagination. And these markets are really fast feedback loops of those kind of possibilities. And, and it is why I think that a lot of the design sector and creative sector is attracted to them right now, maker's culture. Um, and so I, I do think there's something there.